This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer Worldwide. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby Snymer. Saying older Canadians in care facilities and their families have made heartbreaking, life-changing sacrifices, a seniors advocate is calling on them to share their stories as the pandemic continues. And given so many of us love to travel, an expert will explain how COVID-19 could impact seeing the world for years to come. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Doctors are trying to figure out why serious COVID-19 complications appear to be linked to obesity. Excess weight already increases the likelihood of chronic health problems that can make it more likely a person will contract the virus. But evidence suggests obesity itself raises the risk of getting very sick. Some citizenship changes for Jewish refugees who fled Nazi terror. A new Austrian law will allow descendants of Jewish refugees who fled persecution to apply for Austrian citizenship and for British applicants an EU passport. Many Jews who fled Austria in 1938 resettled in the UK, making it the second most common destination after the US. But at the time, Austria did not allow dual citizenship, unlike this new law, which could see a surge in applications. The Jewish community in Austria, which once numbered 200,000, is currently half that. It's being called the Memoir of the Year. Barbara Emile's new autobiography, Friends and Enemies, comes out next month, and in it, the 79-year-old British journalist, writer, and socialite reveals juicy details of her life with husband, former media tycoon Conrad Black. In addition to tales of lavish spending, the U of T grad mostly takes on critics who deserted her husband after his very public downfall and jail time for fraud. The couple lived in Canada for a time before returning to Britain. Yahtzee, the dice-rolling strategy game you play like cards. Some toys Zoomers grew up playing have made this year's list of finalists for the U.S. National Toy Hall of Fame. Risk and Yahtzee, that have been on the market for over six decades, are finalists along with enduring favorites Bingo and Jenga. The 1990s virtual pet Tamagotchi and the not-so-high-tech sidewalk chalk are also on the list of a dozen finalists. Three of them will be inducted into the hall November 5th, just two days after the U.S. election. I'm Bob Compson, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. COVID-19 has hit Canadians and their families hard, none harder than those in long-term care and assisted living facilities. Out in B.C., older residents and their family members are being asked to take part in a survey examining their experiences. Seniors advocate Isabel McKenzie told Libby Snymer why she feels it's important to gather such information. 
when we look at the over the past six months of this pandemic, there's been this extraordinary profound impact on seniors. We know recent studies have said that psychologically, in general, they've handled it quite well, but it's a much more serious illness for seniors, as we know. And for those living in long-term care and here in British Columbia, assisted living as well, most of them went for over three months without seeing any family members or loved ones or being able to get outside at all. And that has had to have had a profound effect. And and we want to understand what that impact has been. It's unprecedented. We've, in the normal course of a a year, we'll have outbreaks in our care homes and we'll um, close them off to visitors for maybe 10 days, two weeks. But uh, this period of time is unprecedented. And my office is hearing calls from family members and from residents about this. We opened up the visits a little bit in British Columbia at the beginning of July, but what has happened is that what people were expecting in terms of their freedom to go and see their loved one isn't what isn't matching the experience for some of them. Some of them are only getting half an hour once a month. Some are only able to see them outside. And we really have to understand that this virus is with us now for, we believe, at least a year, perhaps more. And we do need to keep our seniors who live in long-term care safe, but we need to ask ourselves, what are we keeping them safe for if it's not to enjoy what is left of their life? And for many of them, that is being able to spend meaningful time with, with their loved ones. Here in Ontario, the situation is not much different. Are you aware of the situation here? Uh, and do you, can, can you say anything about how it compares? Certainly in the beginning of the pandemic, the experience in Ontario care homes similar to others, which was no visitors allowed at all. It's how long did that last for and then what does it look like when the visit restrictions are lifted and what was the impact of those visit restrictions? The death toll directly from COVID-19 in nursing homes here is much higher, has been much higher. We kept hearing from family members throughout on how frustrating it was. And and even as the restrictions have started to lift, there doesn't seem to be a, a recognition that often family members, they're not visitors, they're family caregivers. Yes. And I think that is one of the other things that we're asking in our survey. When you visited your loved one, first of all, before COVID, how often did you go? And I think we're going to be surprised to find how many people went daily. And we're going to ask, what did you do when you visited? Because you're quite right. A number of visitors are, in fact, partners in care, that they are helping to feed their loved ones. They are helping to give them physical exercise. They are taking them to the toilet. They are helping to bathe them. They are grooming their fingernails and um, brushing and washing their hair. And those are all things that we have to understand, okay, what happened for the three months, that four months they couldn't visit? And now with the visits so restricted in terms of frequency and duration, those things are still not happening in any meaningful way. In terms of the frequency and duration, uh, a lot of people have complained that in the first place, it's at the discretion of the nursing home. And if they find that they can't manage, uh, then people will have to wait. And at the beginning, when it opened it up, 
uh, visitors had to get COVID tests within the last two weeks, and sometimes their tests would actually expire before they got an appointment. That's a different approach in terms of the COVID testing in Ontario than, than we have in BC. But what is similar, Libby, is this whole issue around different care homes having very different visit experience. I mean, it is the same virus, right? It is the same infection control procedures that um, will help protect people from the virus. And yet we have found that it runs the gamut from some people are getting an hour a week and sometimes more than once a week and they're, you know, able to be in their mom's room or their husband's room. And then others, the care home is saying you get 30 minutes once a month. Other care homes, it has to be outside. And so we're curious as to, okay, why are the, why is there this variation? And should there not be some degree of standardization? It is the same virus. Do you think that it's an oversight that there are no standards or what would the thinking behind it be? I think what has happened is that the direction might be too broad and in the absence of, of greater specifics, you're getting this wide interpretation. One thing that BC does have that is slightly better than Ontario, we have a higher proportion of our residents in single rooms. 75% or three quarters of our residents are in single rooms. So that makes a visit possible in the room, right? Because you're not putting other people in the room at risk. Ontario is a bit trickier that way. You do have a higher proportion of your long-term care beds are in rooms that are shared with other people. Do you think in a general way, that COVID-19 has increased ageism in our society? No. uh, Ageism, I think, uh, absolutely existed before. I think part of the difficulty in combating ageism is that paternalism is at the root of a lot of ageism. And paternalism, by its definition, is we want to take care of you. Um, so it has sort of a, a, a kindness uh, aspect to it. The pe- people aren't doing it to be unkind or cruel. They're, it's the opposite. And I think that's a challenge. What I do think that COVID-19 has done that I hope will be sustained as we go past this is this revelation to Canadians about what life is like in long-term care. And I think a lot of us, we're oblivious to that. Those of us who've worked in it weren't oblivious to it. Isabel McKenzie, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Seniors advocate Isabel McKenzie on a survey out in B.C. examining the experiences of residents in long-term care and assisted living facilities and their families. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is a Zoomer Week in Review. Late last year, the airline industry forecast a 4% increase in global travel demand for 2020 with post-tax profits for North American carriers of 16.5 billion American. This summer, the International Air Transport Association predicting 2020 will go down as the worst financial performance in the history of commercial aviation. In light of COVID-19, will Zoomers, who love to travel, be so eager to return to the skies? To discuss, I reached John Graddock, who, before becoming a lecturer and coordinator of the Global Aviation Leadership Program at McGill University, held senior management jobs with Air Canada and CP Rail. Has enough been done to make flyers feel comfortable to go back to the skies, or does more have to be done? 
There's there's more going to be happening. I think that you know the the airlines, the airports, the uh, you know all of the operators in the aviation industry have been trying a number of things to try to you know reduce the blood pressure that people would have as they you know think about or even get on an airplane. And there's there's no magic bullet. There's nothing there yet. I think that you know you look at different airports around the world, different airlines around the world. They're all trying different things, but, you know, the, the one thing that's really obvious in this exercise is that, you know, there really isn't a standard. It's a um, definitely a work in progress. It seems just about everything that could be done is being done, but is there something we're all missing? Well, I don't think there's anything missing. I think that the fact that, you know, in its totality, what you're trying to do is ready, you're trying to reduce the risk. There's, you know, there's always that, you know, that risk that's there. I think that, you know, where, where, where could we go? Where should we go? Uh, you know, I think that I've got my opinions in terms of, you know, where it has to go. And I think that, you know, I, I, I'm probably not well welcomed in the, in the, in the, in the airline or airport world, but, you know, I'll let you have it anyway. Basically, it's making sure you test before you travel and nobody gets on the airplane until they've been tested. We need it, you know, at the point of departure uh, that, you know, pay, you know, passengers have to be cleared at the point of departure. And we need some rapid testing with rapid results. Don't you think we'll have to get there for peace of mind, though? You know, how we do it and, and what's going to be involved. Like, you know, we, we went through 9-11. Uh, we went through a whole bunch of, of, of initiatives that basically caused us to change the way in which we travel. And we're, and we're living with it, you know, fairly, you know, ob, you know, it's, it's, up, it's obtuse. It's, it's really, you know, it's something that we really feel, you know, comfortable with now. Uh, we're going to have to do the same thing with COVID-19. We're going to have to institute some practices that people are going to have to get used to, uh, in the world of travel. And, uh, whether it's, you know, at the, at the airport or whether it's at the hotel or whether it's even at home, um, we're going to have to make sure that we have some, some, some rigorous and some comprehensive testing of some before we allow people on an airplane. Everyone loves to go somewhere sometime. Some people more than others, whether you're young or a little bit older, people love to travel, especially, I would say, Zoomers, after having worked their entire adult life, want to go somewhere, want to go to a few places. Zoomers are itching to get back out there to travel. So will the joy and exhilaration of travel return? Well, I think that, you know, there's a, there's some issues that we have to deal with with COVID-19 that make the boomer generation more susceptible and more, you know, and more, and should be more concerned. I think that, you know, we've seen the statistics in terms of, you know, what's the mortality rate with respect to COVID-19 among individuals, you know, 65, 70, 75 years of age. Uh, and, you know, we're looking at, you know, a whole bunch of measures being put in by various levels of government and public policy to try to protect that generation. Uh, so, it, you know, you, you've got a couple of things happening around the boomer generation that would kind of, you know, slow down the interest that boomers might have. You know, you, you try to fly these days into a, into a, into another country. Try to get COVID nineteen insurance. You know, it's not that easy to get it, and if you do get it, it's very expensive. So it, you know, when you talk about boomers flying, you know, the first car- the first 
element of their of their trip is basically I need insurance. And unfortunately, you've given today's environment, that's not something that's readily available. So, you know, so as much as boomers would want to travel, and, you know, I'm a boomer as well. So you know, the question is going to be one of trying to figure out, you know, how comfortable do I have to be and how much risk am I willing to take in order for me to fly? And it's not just on the airplane. It's where I'm going to. So, you know, two months ago, Spain opened up its borders. Look what happened to Spain today. Same thing with France. Same thing with Germany. And so, you know, it's going to be a moving target as to what the conditions are for people that want to travel to countries anywhere in the world these days. Mr. Graddick, do you think Canadians and people all over the world are still waiting for the second shoe to potentially drop here? In other words, the second wave potentially oh. before doing anything? I think, I think, I think, you know, the second wave is here. So it's not, it's not, it's not something that, you know, is we, we were going to try to figure out how we're going to do it. If you just look at, you know, the, 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 the this current scenario in Western Europe, I mean, you look, if you look at the first wave, Western Europe, uh, you know, we're, you know, was it, we're on the foreground of, of, of the infections. Uh, you know, you don't have to think too far back of what, you know, the Lombardy region of Italy was like in, you know, in February. Uh, so, you know, they've been through the first wave a couple of months before we did. And now they're going through the second wave. And in some countries, the second wave is worse than the first wave. So I, I think it's, it's not very uh, prudent of us to say, well, you know, the, the second wave may not hit. You know, the second wave has already hit. Uh, and if, if you look at, you know, organ, you know, countries around the world that are experiencing some of these high levels of infection and mortality, um, they're in the middle of a second wave. And my concern is, what's the third wave going to look like? Based on what you've just said, do you feel it's at least a year, if not possibly more, before the world's comfortable to travel? I think that, you know, the travel that you're going to be looking at being able to take over the next little while, I think domestically in Canada, uh, the odds are pretty good that you'll, you'll probably have a, a safe trip. Now, as soon as you decide to travel internationally and you want to go to your safari in Africa or you want to visit, you know, Phnom Penh or you want to go and visit Venice, there is where, you know, it gets really tricky. Uh, and and you really have to consider risk associated with those trips now. So I would say that until we have a vaccine, until we and it's and it's readily available and distributed, and widely distributed uh, in those countries where we in fact would want to travel, travel would be uh, quite precarious and uh, high risk. John Graddick, thank you for your time and your insight. Bob, it's been a pleasure. Have a great day. John Graddick, lecturer and coordinator of the Global Aviation Leadership Program at McGill University. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air.
and The Garden Show.